Hey there, welcome to the Detoxicity Podcast. I'm Mike Joseph, and in this podcast, I have conversations with men to discuss masculinity, everything wrong with it, everything right with it. I ask people to share their stories about life, love, loss, regret, confusion, bravery, and hope. I think we can all learn from the experiences of others, and I constantly commend the folks who come on here and chat in a raw and honest fashion. Detoxicity is available on just about every podcast platform in existence, and I'd love for you to leave a rating on whichever platform you prefer. You can reach out to me directly on Instagram at It's Mike Joseph or by emailing me at detoxpod at gmail.com with any suggestions, comments, or even if you'd like to be interviewed on the show or you know somebody who you think would be a good subject. You can also sign up for the monthly Detoxicity newsletter at tinyurl.com slash detoxpod. Some of you listening may have already gotten a chance to check out episode 18, during which I interviewed musician and label co-owner Matt Block. We talked a little bit about his parents, specifically his father, Daniel Block, who's a psychiatrist. Dr. Block has been in private practice since 1993 and has won awards for his compassionate and patient-friendly approach, and we have gotten the chance to talk to him for an entire episode. Our chat covers the things that uh, spurred him to practice psychiatry initially, and we go pretty deep into reasons why many men are resistant to getting treatment for mental health issues. We also discuss the reasons that mental and emotional issues are not often thought of in a similar light as physical health issues and the barriers to entry that exist for people of color specifically. We also go into detail about the value he sees in being an attentive and nurturing parent, and we talk about what goes into self-care for people who provide an outlet for others as a career. So uh, check out Dr. Block. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, good morning, Mike. Uh, good morning, Dan. <laughs> I still feel yeah, weird calling you. you Dan, by the way. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I will get used I to mean, it. It's a weird thing. I mean, I've had the same thing with a lot of my son's friends. You know, they're all adults now. Don't call me Mr. Block or Dr. <laughs> Block or just call me Dan. But in any event, yeah, I appreciate you inviting me on to your show this morning. Sure. Just a brief word about myself. I am a board certified adult psychiatrist. I've been in practice for 27 years. I was born and raised in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is outside of Philadelphia. Attended public school, went to a liberal arts institution, Franklin and Marshall College for my undergraduate. And I got an excellent medical education at Temple University School of Medicine, where what I liked the most it was very humanistic. It was very hands-on. There was a lot of cross-cultural experience at Temple. And I found the, the whole experience was mainly in not so much how to teach medical data, but that certainly happened, but how to be a doctor. You know, I started my psychiatric residency at Temple and the program was starting to go downhill. So I transferred to Jefferson for my final two years. Probably one of the best moves I've made aside from you know, marrying my wife and having my family. And, you know, we started a life down here in Chester County, nowhere I thought I'd be. (laughs) I originally had planned to be in academia. I was going to teach residents. I was going to work in the hospital. I was going to see some patients. And I hated research. I think I deluded myself into thinking maybe I'll author a couple papers. But frankly, honestly, if I was going to do that, it would have been someone else doing all the work and me stamping my name on it. And that just doesn't feel right. I hated research, plain and simple. The best journal for us to read was the Archives of General Psychiatry. I fell asleep after five minutes. It was the most <laughs> I read one, one article from 1971 that we had to read was actually very good. That's it. I couldn't tell you any other articles I read. So here I sit. Never expected to be in this position. 
but an opportunity had come up. The only recruiter who call I returned because most of them were really sleazy back then. And remember, there was no internet at that point. Right. So you just had to go on phone calls. And I had done a lot of self-education about medical business and how to run a practice already. And I had a great supervisor at Jefferson, Dr. Elizabeth Shaken Kunkel, who took me out for some long power lunch and gave me this gigantic, like multiple page presentation on how to set up a psychiatric service. Because by that time I had accepted my position at a small community hospital that had no mental health services whatsoever. Oh, wow. And that's, I interviewed for it. I went home that day. My wife said, so what'd you think? And I said, actually, this is really going to be a good opportunity. I think I can do it. We were seven and a half minutes from um, her parents, her, my oldest, Matthew, who you know, Mm-hmm. Um, who, who did your episode? Yeah, who's been on a, on a, get, with, been a guest? With a little baby at the time, and he was, you know, spending a lot of time with her parents. My parents were only a half hour away, and it was it was hard to leave there because we had a lot of support. But to to give Julie, my wife, a lot of credit, she said, "Dan, you know what? Um, this is what we'll do. If you think this is going to be a good opportunity, then let's do it." And you know, it was kind of all I needed. The CEO said, "If you're who we think you are, this will be up and running." And back then, they did something called an income guarantee. So they would say, you can make X number of dollars in year one. And I actually got a three-year deal. Mm, If you, any amount under that, that you don't make, we make up for. So obviously, early on, they're paying me a lot more. Any amount over that at the end of the year, you have to pay back. And he told me, he said, look, I'll give you three years. I don't think you're going to need it, but I'll give you three years. Uh, by 10 months. It was so in need down here. So I established a practice and then here I sit. The hospital was sold for a for-profit company. By that time, my loved CEO had had to retire medically because he didn't take care of himself. So place went down downhill. CHS, which is a for-profit healthcare system out of Tennessee, bought it and ruined it. Sold it just a couple of years ago to Tower Health, but that's a different story. They said, we're going to keep all the services I knew that that meant we were going because we're psychiatry. Mental health is kind of like the stepchild of medicine still. Mm -hmm. A month later, the new CEO says, just want to let you know we're cutting your whole department. It isn't, I quote this, Mike, it's an unprofitable product line. So not only, you know, my practice, all of the local um, community, including people who were on public assistance, the, the few minorities that live in our area, everybody, we were all, no more services, just cut unceremoniously cut. So I left the hospital. I've been in my practice up the road. I've been in this office now for 18 and a half years. I love it. I mean, it's a a challenging work. It's great work, you know, and it has afforded me the opportunity to be the kind of father I wanted to be. Uh, And, you know, times are different when I was raised. My dad had to work a lot. I mean, he was at the things that he could be at, but, you know, he, he had to raise the family. My mom was home with us. You know, we were a close family growing up and I just wanted things to be different. So I purposely chose this lifestyle so I could coach Matt and Jake and Hannah in soccer. I can coach all their basketball teams. When my dad moved and mom moved down to the area, gosh, 19 years ago, my dad coached all the basketball teams with me. Right. It was really cool. (laughs) He got to do all the things that he didn't get to do. And for me, it was great sharing that with him. And but spending time with my family, particularly, you know, all three of them and my boys to help model for them how I think a man should be 
in a family. It's not just that he goes to work. Right. It's, you know, I'm here, I'm a presence. And I, you know, we nice went on a family vacation every year, usually nothing super fancy. Most of the time, either a beach, most of the time more recently with national parks and hiking. And, you know, it's time for us to bond together. So, you know, all along, it was really important to grow family with my wife. And, you know, I would take off midday, not schedule anyone and go see their concerts at the elementary school. Never missed a jazz band concert with either of my sons or a chorale uh, performance with my daughter. And, you know, to me, that's what it was all about. My field has afforded me the opportunity to do that. So that's me in a nutshell. My other love is music, of course. And you could see my sons, you, yeah. um, all in the music industry. I think Matt mentioned I was a DJ from co- in college and med school to support myself. So, yeah. uh, but in any event, that's me. That's who I am. So... With your practice, is there a specialty or a particular set of of people or set of diagnoses that you specialize in? Not really. I'm an adult psychiatrist, so generally anyone who's 18 and older, I'll see occasionally like a second semester high school senior. Okay. Um, I focus my practice, probably about 75% of my practice is actually psychotherapy. I know that's kind of a, a dinosaur these days. Most psychiatrists come out. They do the eval, they prescribe the meds, and someone else does the therapy. Uh, to me, split care can work only if it's a therapist who I know really well and okay. who I trust. Otherwise, I mean, it's a crapshoot. Some of them are good, some of them aren't. And plus, I don't really get to be a doctor then. I don't really pushing a prescription and then seeing someone maybe four times a year only. It's okay for those who only need me for that or they need to go to a therapist in their network, but they want to see me because of my expertise with medications. But I prefer the person-to-person, face-to-face work of individual psychotherapy. I also do some marital work. <clears throat> I have a few couples who have been coming to me off and on through the years. You know, but that's, that's generally what I do. So it's more therapy-focused, Mike. I am a huge proponent of everybody needing to seek therapy. And I, I was very late on that train. I didn't start seeing a therapist until I was in my early thirties. Why do you think that people, and we can separate this out so many different ways by gender, by racial makeup are reluctant to see a therapist? I think most of the time it's fear. There's a lot of stereotypes about what we do. I can't tell you how many times after an evaluation, I've had people say, this isn't what I expected. And I always ask, how was this for you? Did this go as you had hoped it would? Most of the time I hear, this is really different than another psychiatrist I've seen. See, the difference is I also do a two-hour evaluation initially. You know, seeing someone in a half hour making a diagnosis, it's just just not proper. You can't do that. Right. I think there is definitely, it's changing now to a degree, but there's definitely a difference with respect to who is more apt to call. Still, to this day, women are more apt to call for help sooner, but it's changing. I have a lot of male patients who have, but I think one of the biggest deterrents most of the time, male or female, is fear. Fear of facing something within that doesn't feel right, but sometimes the status quo presents a certain familiarity and comfort that's hard to move from, even though there's a need to. Other times, people come because there's some really serious mental illness. There's you know, out of control bipolar disorder. I don't have a large population of schizophrenics in my practice, but there's schizophrenia. 
you know, some pretty serious depressive illnesses, people who are suicidal, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. And many times with my substance abusers, it's somebody in the family said, you better get help or else. Right. Um, but, you know, others just call and say, hey, I'm really stressed out at my work. I had one of the most interesting experiences recently. A, a, uh, a police officer had called for an evaluation. And <clears throat> he's had a lot of job stress. And with all of what's been going on recently, I, I kind of figured, you know, I even found myself making some assumptions. Am I going to want to talk to this guy? Sure. But I'm always open and honest and I'm, un and, and I'm non-judgmental. Whoever comes through my door, I'm a doctor first. So, you know, our oath is above all else, do no harm. And I, I take a non-judgmental approach. So we talked about his job stress. We talked about his marital stress. We talked about the fact that he was not very popular in his small town because he did not send any police force to um, the protest. And he said, people have a right to protest peacefully. And I don't think what's been going on is right. And I'm not going to add or be part of the problem. And I thought, wow, that's really enlightened, especially, yeah. you know, the area that this person comes from. And it was kind of, I learned something, you know? So that's the other piece of my job. I, I learn from the people who come to me. But, you know, as far as the access to care, Mike, the biggest issue I still think most of the time is fear. And I see a higher level of avoidance initially in male patients. How do, how do men get over that fear? Like, because a lot of it is cultural, right? Like, you know, men are, are you know, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying here. Like, men are not supposed to have feelings and they're not supposed to talk to people and there's all this stress on being strong and, and not vulnerable and, and that kind of stuff. Like, how do we turn that conversation around? Well, I, I think from my standpoint, trying to make the experience as normal as possible, trying to make it feel like, you know, I'm going to my family doc because I have a sinus problems. I'm going to go to my psychiatrist because I have some issues with things. And so being non-judgmental, I always ask if it was hard for you to make this appointment. What made you come in half the time? My wife said she can't stand it. Or my wife pointed out that I've been really irritable lately. And, you know, she's right. I don't, I'm not really sure why I think it's this and this. But I, I said I would go. Some people have been doing it for a long time, Mike, and I'm just the next psychiatrist in line because they moved to this area or they weren't satisfied with the previous care. But <clears throat> it becomes more a matter of how boys are socialized to become men and the, the concept of masculinity that they're taught. And it can't be this in sense of invulnerability. Yeah, I know we're supposed to be tough, but you know what? Women can be just as tough as we are. Right. Yeah, we're supposed to be the protectors, but hey, I mean, there are as many women in the military who are quite as capable of protecting us as there are men. Uh, those stereotypes, and in general, I think stereotypical profiling of what a man is supposed to be, that's where it needs to change. So in the homes and in how we educate, otherwise, you know, generationally things get transmitted, as you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes transmitted for a very long time. You, you know, you look all the way back to 
supposed biblical times and before all recorded history. Who wrote it? So we man. did. Yeah. Men. Yeah. Mostly throughout history, it's been men. Right. Who shaped the roles and the values for the roles? Men. And so you can see how old this is. So we start with education in the homes, how people are educated in school, with role models speaking up about it. Now we have podcasts, we have webinars. You know, I think your your webinar, your, your podcast, I mean, is a fantastic idea because I hope the more people listen to it, the more they start to maybe change how they think about their own masculinity and what so it means. <laughs> You know, I'm sure when you were growing up, when I was growing up, there was a certain idea of what a guy is supposed to be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you didn't fit that mold for whatever your reasons were, it was isolating. It made people made you feel bad. And it burned in many times the drive to work harder to be that to be that guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I. I you know, I was born in the 70s and kind of grew up in, in the 80s and early 90s. And, you know, the, the conversation around masculinity really was, you know, if you were anything, if you were sensitive, if you were artistic, if you were, you know, not, you know, sort of a stereotypical man, especially, you know, being a black man and being a black man who whose family is from another country, you know, if you weren't like that, then you were, you know, a sissy or a fag or, or you know, there was something wrong with you. And I, I, I would like to think that in the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, that conversation has shifted, uh, you know, and there's certainly been progress in that. But it's still in a lot of cultures. And I think also for people who are in less urban environments, that that sort of traditional idea of masculinity is still very much ingrained. Absolutely, Mike. I mean, I saw this, a tale of two families, I'll call it just a brief vignette from my clinical practice. So years ago, I had this one couple, both, well, the woman was seeing me for some depressive symptoms and she was just coming for medication. She was stable, well-educated, um, pretty religiously strict, as was her husband. I don't know that they were fundamentalists, but somewhere along those lines. Mm -hmm. And she called me up and it was really unlike her. She, she was a nurse. It's unlike her to get really rattled about anything. And she was really upset and said, can my husband come? Sure. I don't know what's going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they get there and they look at me and they say, well, we're just going to put this right out there. Our son, we found out, has been dating a boy. And the son must have been late teens, early 20s. Mm -hmm. All right. My initial response was, Yes, so <laughs> that's not what I said to them. I said, okay. I said, when, you know, I, when did you learn this? They start going through it and all, and I'm just listening. And they wanted to know what they could do, what they did wrong. And I said, well, first of all, you haven't done anything wrong. Second of all, uh, there's really nothing you can do. And they literally said to me, well, we don't hate him. We hate the sin. Sure. And I thought, oh, boy, the husband was a stonewall blank. He sat far away from me. I offered for him to pull his chair closer. He just sat like my bird, my cockatoo comes to the office with me. He sat right next to her. 
I'm surprised she didn't try and bite him because she doesn't <laughs> like people like that. <clears throat> so in any event, <clears throat> I kind of had a sense I was never going to see them again. And I was trying to maintain my sense of non-judgmental attitudes. But I did say, I said, look, I said, I think then it's going to come down to a choice. You're either going to have to choose what your faith tells you or choose your son. I don't think they liked that because they got up and left a few minutes later and I never did hear from them again. Mm. And I'm going to guess it didn't go so well. In their mind, their son was sinning. He wasn't good. He wasn't a real man. Contrast that with a different couple, uneducated, rough around the edges, same problem. The guy I had been seeing because he'd come to me when, when he had some cancer and he was feeling depressed. And the wife was, this one, no one messed with this person. I mean, she was a force <laughs> to be reckoned with. But underneath the gruff exterior, a good person. And they came in, same issue. And the wife said, I only have one question. Did I do something wrong as a mother? What did I do? I said, nothing. The father, surprisingly, had already accepted it. He was okay with it. All they wanted to know was what should they do moving forward. And I said, have you met the partner? Yeah, he's really nice. We even had dinner with his parents. I said, oh, wow. right, you guys don't need, I said, you guys don't need to do anything else. You're doing just fine. Yeah. And flash forward like 15 years later, they have a great relationship with him. So I think it really varies like family to family. And both of them are out here in the suburban area. You know, I think what you're seeing a lot of times, Mike, with masculinity in those roles a lot of it is also defined by what goes on religiously in the household. You know, organized religion has a certain hierarchy and a certain expectation for male and female roles. Mm -hmm. And any deviation usually is not tolerated. So, I mean, that's another area I think that contributes. And therefore, let's say there was a man and let's, and, and he was wrestling with sexual identity issues and his parents were strict fundamentalists or you know helen brimstone fire yeah. i doubt he's going to come to my office while he's living with them lest they find out or he might come for some other quote reason end quote right so in way i work i always make it a lot easier i ask at sexual history when did you become sexually active and have all of your partners been whatever and if not who else and is this an issue for you I, I don't have one gay patient who is not comfortable with his or her identity and it's fine and it's okay to talk about with me i've had a few come trying to figure that stuff out and usually with support they become okay with it the first thing they have to do is realize there's no reason to hate oneself because of who one is and, you know, I've had those kinds of conversations with people, minorities as well. So I think another issue we bleed into here, Mike, with uh, the roles of masculinity is if, if you are considered other, meaning you don't fit the stereotype role, a lot of times self-hatred is a barrier to care. Sure. Sure. I mean, I can certainly relate to that in, in a lot of <laughs> ways. And, you know, I am... In, in terms of racial makeup, like I'm 
proud to be who I am and I don't want to be anything other than what I am, but that was a process. You know, in terms of my sexuality, that's something, you know, I often think that I'm, you know, for lack of a better term, coming out of, but, you know, there are periods of depression or sadness when the self-hate immediately kind of jumps back. And, you know, it's kind of an, an ongoing process still. But it really is interesting how being othered, and I think that applies to race and, and sexuality, and even within those things being being othered, you know, not feeding into stereotypes of what either of those is supposed to be, like how those can lead to, you know, sort of psychological issues. Well, absolutely. I mean, you look at the history of otherness, you know, we'll take, for instance, the example of Black America and in Civil War times and then on into the 1900s, there was actually a diagnosis in psychiatry, which is part of our, my field's dark and shameful past called drapetomania. And it was applied to black, it was supplied, it was applied to black slaves who wanted to be free. And it was a reason for institutionalizing them. And many of the research studies that were done in the 1800s looked at the rate of back then it was called insanity. And they found that the rate of insanity of blacks in the North was higher than in the South. And from that, they concluded that blacks were meant to stay in slavery because they stayed mentally healthier. And it's just a disgusting part of psychiatry's past. Um, Back to the, you know, in the 1800s. And in fact, I just finished part two of a two article series written by Um, our our association's president now just highlighting and laying it bare for everybody as a way to uh, begin the dialogue for change in our field. Um, I mean, our field's come a long way. And back then, otherness was a way for whites to project all their inner badness and things they weren't comfortable with onto blacks. Sure. So it's a process called projection in my field. And you know, how many times have you heard somebody say, well, I went to confession and I did this and this and I'm okay now, right? Or, or I talked to my rabbi and my rabbi said this was okay and things like that. And it's another way to project out inner badness or inner negativity onto someone else. Mm-hmm. Now, what often happens is the, in, in unhealthy relationships, the more that projection happens, many times the person who's being projected onto starts to act that stuff out. Mm-hmm. It's this un, unconscious dance. And this particularly happens with men. As far as we talk about barriers to coming to see me, if somebody already feels like other, hey, look, I'm the other of Madison. I'm often still looked at as, well, you're not a real doctor. Even occasionally, <laughs> that with my patients, well, you know, I come to you for this, but I talk to my doctor for that. Right. <laughs> so, right. You know, I just, I understand where they're coming from. But so, so otherness is, is, I would have to say, another barrier, many times more often for men in seeking care, seeking health care. And it contributes to um, issues with masculinity for sure. That, that, like, that, that comparison you just made about othering using psychology versus the rest of medicine, that never, ever occurred to me. And I, I love when somebody says something that just sort of, like, blows my mind a little bit. 
And mm-hmm. it, that makes so much sense. You know, my joke, when I, the patients who I've known long enough, I joke around, I say, well, actually, you came to me because now you need a complete doctor. <laughs> you went to this doctor for this problem, that doctor for that problem. They don't understand that as a medical doctor, I have to understand and be aware of illnesses across the entire spectrum because all of them can affect the brain. Sure. And affect, and affect mental functioning. I have to know everybody else's medicines. I can't tell you how many times a patient will call me up and say, hey, can you tell me if this is going to, my doctor just put me on X. Can you tell me if this is going to interact? I'm thinking, didn't your doctor check? Why are you mm. calling me? No, I mean, my, my inner thought process is it's not my job to do that doctor's job. But patients come to me because they know I'll check because I'm careful anyway. I always check for interactions. But yeah, otherwise, I mean, you know, when I worked in a hospital, my first time, my, my early part of my career down here, I got a lot of crap for being a psychiatrist. Like there was one particular internist who would see patients in the hospital. And if I, I would get called on a consult, if they happened to even be on a psych med, even if they were stable. And one time he called me for a consult the day of this person's discharge to have me write the psychiatric medicine discharge prescription, even though it wasn't my patient. I said, wow. no, I'm not doing it. I said, I'm not doing it. And then he tried to cause trouble with the hospital's administration that I was refusing something. I mean, that's the kind of crap that goes on, you know, and they didn't understand that the minute I started writing orders or doing anything, I'm no longer a consultant. So I couldn't bill for my services either. Sure. They don't know that. I'm a consultant. I made recommendations. It's up to them to follow them. So, you know, but, but this, this whole idea of otherness, I mean, let's think about it. What's, what's most people's worst fear? Being, I mean, being disliked or being unloved or something like that. I don't know. Sure. Sure. And I think like on a deeper level, sometimes more often than not, people have this deep fear of losing control. Ah, okay. And, you know, if you're loved and cared for, you still, that, that often provides you a sense of control in your environment. I know who I can trust. And, you know, men are socialized from an early age to be self-sufficient and perhaps a little less trusting to begin with. Right. You know, and I think that tends to get in the way, too, so that if a man starts to feel like, am I losing it here? He may already have the idea that, well, I can't. I have to take care of my family. I can't. I have to be the man at work. I can't be having crying spells on the job of those guys. I'll never hear the end of it from them. Sure. You know, or I don't want to be put in an impaired physician's program because I'm having problems. I don't want it out there. I don't want it seen. You know, doctors a lot of times won't are afraid to come to me because they're afraid it's going to ruin their reputation. Same with some of my other professionals. One, one attorney years ago, I have two doors in my office, one to the front of the building and one to my office mm-hmm. waiting room. And this person was never sure if a client was going to be the next patient. I couldn't tell because of confidentiality. So I would let this patient leave through the other door so as not to be seen. Wow. And again, there's not being seen connotes a certain sense of shame about having been seen by me in the first place. Right. You see. So, and shame is a, is an even, is a large motivator for human behavior. And in men in particular, since that's what we're talking about, it's shameful to not be a man in the traditional, stereotypical sense of what is a man. Right. Right. 
another barrier to mental health care. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's interesting to me, you know, we, we did a little bit of chatting beforehand and, you know, one thing, I mean, that I'm certainly aware of, but you laid out really, really succinctly is that the idea of intimacy and emotional needs for women is much more like women are able to be much more vast in their emotional scope than men are, you know, and we could trace that back to, you know, however long, I mean, it goes back to a lot of the things that we are, you know, that we've said uh, so far during this conversation. Why? I mean, I know the why, but again, it's kind of like, how can we retrain people to understand that intimacy is like a whole, you know, it's not just, it's not just sex. It's, you know, platonic relationships, it's family relationships, it's, you know, all of that stuff. Like, how do we teach men to be more, just generally more open, whether it's physically open or emotionally open or, you know, from a tactile sense, more open, like, because I feel like, you know, part of the stereotypical, you know, part of the stereotypical reduction of men is that they're not allowed to, you know, they're not allowed to hug and they're not allowed to cry and they're not allowed to, you know, unless like somebody scores a touchdown, you know, (laughs) or like, you know, or, or, you know, mom or dad passes away or something like that. They're just not allowed to have any emotions or any feelings, particularly for other men that can potentially be seen as, like crossing an emotional or physical line. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. You know, what were we taught to do as boys? Shake hands. Right. 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 And, you know, fortunately now we, we see it a lot differently. I mean, women, of course, shake hands and especially like, and I taught my daughters the same way I taught my boys always give a firm handshake. It's the first thing that people are going to realize about you when you're meeting somebody. That's Look right. Look a person in the eye and give a firm handshake. My boys do. My daughter does. As far as touch, you're right. I mean, growing up, we hug our guy friends because that would have connotations about our masculinity. I actually have to give a lot of credit to this country's, our athletes, because they're the ones who started to really show this a lot more very publicly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how many times after an NBA game do the players, well, they won't be now because of coronavirus, but they <laughs> hug, right? And I think that has actually opened up a whole new way of men looking at each other and not worrying, well, if I love this guy, does that mean something bad about me? No, it just means you love this person, (laughs) you know, who cares? You know, I I remember friends of ours had come over to dinner one time and they had something important to tell us about their son. Great kid. And we said, well, what's going on? Well, he just came out. And both my wife and I said, okay, so he's still himself. And then the conversation just melted away. There really wasn't need. And they know us, so they knew we weren't going to, they just wanted us to know but so, all right, he's still who he is, right? Yeah. As far as, you know, emotion goes, though, I, I think there's a lot of stereotyping going on. So, you know, we'll take sexuality and sexual orientation, for instance. 
And many times if men were seen hugging or showing warm feelings or even saying, hey, I love you, uh, it would connotate that, well, they must be gay. Right. And as if there's something wrong with being who you've been since you've been born. And so it just doesn't, wouldn't happen. And then what was it? Was the, was it, was it one of the Budweiser commercials? It, it started saying, I love you, man. I love you, man. Yeah. I think that was a Budweiser commercial. I think you're right. How, how did you feel about that when they said that? I mean, it was, it was played for, for laughs, obviously, but it's still like seeing a guy say, I love you to another guy on screen is, is a big deal for someone who is not, who is not brought up to, to feel that way. I mean, I like one thing I always sort of say about the whole like intimacy between men thing is that, you know, I, I was maybe 30 years old before like a, a, a straight friend of mine would, you know, we would part ways, we would say goodbye to each other and he would give me a kiss. And I would always, you know, the first couple of times I was taken aback and I really felt weird because I was like, okay, the only times any guy has ever kissed me as an adult was because there was some sort of sexual interest. Sure. I, I was not taught that people, that two men could show affection in that way and not have any kind of, of, of romantic or sexual intent. So even for me, as someone who, you know, who identifies as queer, to have that introduction so late in life to like physical intimacy between men that does not involve sex, I think, you know, kind of speaks a lot to how, how blocked up and how, you know, how reserved, or not reserved is not the repressed uh, a lot of us are and conditioned some of us are even in modern times and even, you know, with, even if we're not heterosexual. Sure. I, I think repressed is actually the perfect word that you, that you, as you put it, it there is a lot that's repressed because, you know, frankly, the, the first male we interact with most of the time is dad, if right. dad's around or some other male figure, like a grandfather or an uncle or an older brother. And, you know, showing affection to sons now is kind of like it's normal. And my dad actually grown up, he was always affectionate that way. I mean, he would tell us that he loved us and we would get a kiss from him and things. So it really wasn't something that I would have looked at as abnormal. But that that beer commercial, I love you, man. <laughs> you think about it. And when you when you watch it, it doesn't feel sexual. It doesn't no, feel like, oh, those guys must have a thing for one another. It just felt like, and I think it's because the way they portrayed it in kind of this funny sort of joking way. So, you know, I, I think you're gradually starting to see some cultural shifts. How many times have you heard the word bromance where right. it's two guys who have just really strong affection for one another and they may or may not be heterosexual, homosexual. It doesn't really matter. It's not a sexually intimate relationship. It's not that kind of relationship. You know, there's a lot of assumptions that I think are dying now, fortunately, but about gay men that, oh, they look at every guy as a potential partner. No, they don't. They definitely they're don't. No different than heter they're no different than heterosexuals. There's likes and dislikes. There's who you're attracted to and who isn't. 
And I, I think it's condescending and arrogant to assume that if I give a hug to a gay guy, uh, he must think I'm interested. No, he doesn't. I might not be his type. He might have no interest knowing that I'm not gay anyway or whatever. But I think those are old stereotypes that still sort of bleed in and trickle in. I think, you know, it's changing more. And again, you know, we'll look to the art world and the sports world as kind of the cultural leaders, I would say. How many professional players in the last few years have come out? I think beginning with Jason Collins in, in the NBA, who not only is he black, but he's also gay. And he came out in what was traditionally a very hyper-masculine sport. Right. And you know what? The response to him mostly seemed to be okay, I think. And people were really applauding his bravery for making okay to come out and do that. And you've seen a lot more athletes since then do that. Um, remember the whole thing with Michael Sam yep. in football? He was the first person I thought of. Yeah. People were afraid to draft him because he would disrupt the locker room. I mean, come on. Really? Really? But you know what? He probably would have for some people, unfair as it is. Yeah. People I mean, some people about, can't handle yeah. it. Some people can't handle no. it. And some people are worried. You know, something I've experienced is that a lot of people who are on the spectrum somehow, and I mean, my belief is that I think most people are, but some people think that being in that situation with someone who is open and confident about their sexual preference will force them out of the closet. Sure. Like they have, um, they're wrestling with their own feelings. I saw this happen in residency. There was a, one of my attending physicians, a teacher in the psychiatry department. Let's put it this way. He was probably one of the most caricatured, flamboyant, outrageous <laughs> characters you would ever meet. So if you Google this guy after we're done, John mm-hmm. Fryer, F-R-Y-E-R, M-D. Mm-hmm. John was a groundbreaking psychiatrist, actually. And he, in 1973, when the American Psychiatric Association convened their meeting, he was one of the advocates to have homosexuality removed as a mental illness. And you know what? It, it happened. He was one of the main movers in normalizing various, the, the whole spectrum of sexuality. Right. On the other hand, if he found out a resident was gay, he would out the resident just because he thought that's how it should be. And it was kind of, it wasn't fair, but on the other hand, I get what he was doing. Sure. When we started residency there, he took each of us out one at a time to lunch to give the quote fryer secret. So, and he came from Kentucky or somewhere. So he had this kind of a Southern drawl and he was this gigantic man. I mean, he had to be about six, six and he was very obese. Mm-hmm. So when John Fryer was in the house, you knew this man was in the house. <laughs> and, and if, and if you didn't see him, you heard him because he had a following voice. <laughs> He was, an, he was an amazing teacher, and he said to me, he said, so I'm taking each of you out before you get started and in this nice southern draw. He said, so I don't want there to be any fire secrets around here, but uh, I just want you to know I'm gay. And I just looked and I said, no shit, John. We know. <laughs> he said, okay. And it was, like, it was that kind of thing. So, you know, but it was people like him who worked really hard to start to just normalize a a sliding floor for what is masculinity. Right. Right. Um, And, and there's still, you know, 
and again, kind of confronting my own prejudices here, it there is still the assumption, and I had this assumption for a long time, and I know plenty of people who do have it on on every every part of the spectrum that straight equals traditionally masculine and gay equals traditionally feminine. You know, there are a lot of people that think that think people are gay because they want to be women. There are people who don't understand that there are straight men who can be flamboyant and there are, you know, gay men who can be, you know, traditionally masculine. There's all sorts of stuff in between. Like people kind of freeze these behaviors into like binary, you know, stereotypes. And, you know, I, I, there, I, there has been some releasing of that. I mean, I, I think of the media and, you know, I, I, there's still not a lot of gay characters who are not sort of fastidious or, you know, dress and drag or, or, or stuff like that. So just kind of, you know, shaking those stereotypes and sort of not equating one sexual orientation with a particular behavior and also just kind of eradicating what's masculine and what's feminine because, you know, no behavior should be solely assigned to women and no behavior should be solely assigned to men. Well, I think you're starting to see some of that in the media now and in, in shows and all. So my wife and I watched season one of The Politician. It was, it was a good show. It was funny. It was snarky. We haven't really looked. I don't know if season two is coming out or maybe coming out soon, but all of the characters were sexually fluid. It, it's a it's very campy and, and overdone. It's supposed to be that way. And but all the characters. In fact, one of the main characters p- played by oh God, what's that? Ben, ben Platt mm-hmm. is one mm-hmm. of the main characters. And he has a romantic fling with a with a boy in high school. And then whenever he's having periods of doubt, the boy thought this, this friend dies, this friend appears to him in these visions, encouraging him to go on, encouraging him to keep, he plays piano and he is going to law school or something like that. But he also has a girlfriend. So the, the interesting piece of how it portrays and it makes it just feel normal is that all the characters are kind of sexually, most of them actually, most of the main characters are kind of sexually fluid. Right. You know, and there's, I found less, to a degree, less stereotyping of roles in this, I guess, to the best of the writer's ability. So, you know, I, I think the more we see that, I mean, crap, back in the 70s, would you ever see two guys kiss on screen? No, no, never. No, 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 no. And it was the cultural values that were still pretty much locked in the 40s and the 50s. And there were all these sensors and things weren't allowed on. Yeah. You know, there was still a lot of censorship. And I think, unfortunately, that hurts people who are other. Whenever there's censorship, it cuts out one more vehicle for expression. And I know, you know, we, we talked a little bit before all of this about how might that impact people coming for care. Well, if you already feel like nobody wants to hear what you have to say, and in fact, you're not allowed to say it. Why would this doctor want to listen to this too? Right. So, you know, or why would this therapist want to hear all this? Because if no one else wants to, why should I trust this person? And it's a, you know, and, and particularly with men already still having to less so now, but still having to fight the 
connotation that if you have to go to a psychiatrist, you're something less than male. You can't handle your shit. You can't right. handle your problems. Right. Switching gears, what what are you proudest of as like a dad? Like what you know, what what's and I mean, I know all three of your kids and you know, I, I know the boys better than I know I know Hannah, but they're all awesome people and like good people, like not just like like thoughtful, good, like warm people. Um, well, you, I, answer, you, I, answer, you answered it already. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm most proud of the people they've become. And the fact that, you know, we, Julia and I worked and continue to work less so now. We don't have to as much, but worked really hard being parents. We would call each other out if we thought one or the other wasn't doing something right. And neither of us are perfect. We made mistakes. All parents do. Right. Um, I never expected to be a perfect parent. I learned a lot about parenting and being a family from my wife. And, you know, and I always wanted to be a really good father. So I think one of the things that we encouraged from a young age, both of us were do what you're passionate about, find a passion in life, you know, I told them the story of an attorney who I used for some contract matters. He was an excellent attorney, owned his own firm in Philly. I think he had his first heart attack in his early 50s, late 40s, because I was working in the hospital and I found out he was hospitalized. He had another one. Last time I saw him was at my father-in-law's mother's funeral years ago, and he looked gray. He had retired by that point. What I learned, he wanted to be a doctor. Dad said, you will be an attorney. He had to fit this male role that his father laid forth for him about what it would be for him to be a complete man. He did it and he hated it. He was very successful, but he hated it. So I said, just do what you're passionate about. It's not an accident at all that none of my kids followed me into medicine because none of them were interested. And, you know, I didn't feel like as a father, it was my job to shape that. It was my job to help shape their development as people, not shape the person that they wanted to be and who they were to become. So if one of my kids <clears throat> were to come home and announce, hey, dad, this is who I'm with now, fine. If my child's going to ask, hey, do you see any, you know, I really want your honest opinion, I'll give it. The worst opinion ever is that which is not solicited. So that's how I tended to to parent, unless I saw something major going on. But I am most proud of the people that they have become and are continuing to become. I'm proud that they are open-minded, tolerant, and accepting of most people as well. And that they've you know, chosen paths in life that seem to be gratifying to them. And you know, our name, Matt and Jake, are really passionate about the, the record label. Right. So... It's the fact that they're living what I think right now is their lives the best that they can, and they're doing what they want to do. My other piece that I'm proud of is that I don't place expectations on them. Neither does my wife as a, as a parent. They don't owe me anything but respect. And my, my philosophy in parenting is, no, you pay it forward. If you have kids, this is what you do for your kids. Or if you don't have kids, but you're in some other situation, this is what you do. You don't owe me anything. I grew up <clears throat> with a lot of expectations that were generationally handed down. So I don't really blame anybody for them. Mm -hmm. When we were younger, 
when I was growing up. My, we would see my grandparents whenever, but it would always be this big family dinner. And sometimes it was every weekend. My wife had a lot of the same type of stuff. And it was always call your grandparents. So I remember when I was in college, my grandmother would never call me. And I one time said to her, Grandma, you can call me too. Oh, I, I, I don't want to bother you. And I said, it's not going to bother me. I said, if you need to signal, because back then it was a toll call for her and we didn't have universal long distance. So right, right. I would say, if you need to signal me, just I'll let it ring twice. Just hang up after two rings and then I'll call you back. She never would call. We had to call them. And as things have moved forward and I've changed my ways of looking at things, sometimes that can cause a little bit of conflict here and there about what's expected of me, a 56-year-old man at this point. But, you know, we work through that. So the fact that as a father, I haven't placed expectations on them. I feel really good about that. So I feel like I've given them a good groundwork. I provided them with education along with, with and, and my wife and I really set that tone here. That's what I feel good about as a father. That is amazing, <laughs> first of all. And I guess sort of to, to, to wrap up, you obviously take on a lot of emotional labor for a lot of people. What do you do to take care of yourself? Oh, well, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's a hard thing because it is very stressful. And now it's even more stressful Right now, I'm doing telehealth, so right. I miss out a lot of information. I can't see a person's whole body. I can't use all five of my senses, so I have to concentrate harder on the screen. So the emotional burden is even higher, particularly dealing with people who are isolated or lose, have lost family members or friends because of the virus. Right. But in general, what do I do? I've developed a pretty strong exercise discipline through the years, so five days a week, I'm either like elliptical or running three days a week and then I lift two days a week and then Julie and I will often take a walk when we can we go hiking you know I, I mostly spend a lot of time at home the one thing that I do is I'm, I'm pretty boundaried about what constitutes work time and not when I'm done at the end of the day I'm done and I make it really clear to patients that calling me would be for emergencies only mm-hmm. I I, I occasionally we'll get the call where it's not really a few times I've had to say to a patient, look, it seems like you're needing to call me every day in the evening. And I don't want you to feel like you can't talk with me. But on the other hand, that tells me maybe you need to be coming to see me more often. How about if I schedule you a session next week and we can see how that goes nine times out of 10, the daily calls stop. So I protect my, my carved out free time. And like I told you earlier in this podcast I scheduled purposely so I had all this family time so spending time with my family and I enjoy gardening outside I, mean, I used to have a lot more hobbies when I was younger I've kind of fallen away from them I studied martial arts for five years and practiced for many years after I just I just lost interest stopped didn't have time I used to play basketball once a week but you know my you get to that point where your brain says yeah you're a guy, you can still do this. Come on. <laughs> and, you know, you're, my, my niece say, are you out of your mind? You're not, no, no. And in fact, I'm going to tear if you go do this. So yeah, I finally um, gave, I gave up basketball. Right around that time, my son Jacob, he's a good basketball player, and I remember I was out in the driveway playing him one-on-one, and he must have been about 14 or 15 at the time. And he's so fast. <laughs> he locked my ankles. I went down, 
Oh. And it was either going to be, if I keep playing, I'm either going to hurt him or I'm going to hurt myself. So that was it for playing. The only time I would ever play with him or, or Matt would be if I could take them to, I, I would play in a, like a pickup intramural type thing once a week. And I would bring them to like one time the bunch of guys said, please don't bring him anymore. So, <laughs> with, you know, so I don't play basketball anymore, but those kinds of things. I still listen to a lot of music, as you know. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I read. I like reading. I enjoy that and watching some shows. So, you know, anything that's not work-oriented to me is kind of downtime. Of course, taking care of, trying to get enough sleep. We eat a tremendously healthy diet, low on the food chain, organic food wherever possible because I take care of my body. So a lot of dealing with that kind of stress is being physical and taking care of my body. It, it kind of lets me discharge that energy. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to add or, you know, did well, we miss I a mean, topic? Did we, did we touch the points? Did you, did you want touched, to touch on, I, I'm not sure if you wanted to touch on any other points about barriers to care or access, or if you think that we covered that as far I as mean, mental health care and masculinity. That actually is really important. I mean, I think in a lot of cases, or so I am a big proponent of therapy and I'm a big public proponent of therapy. And I definitely have had friends who have been like, yeah, Mike, I should do this. Yeah, I should do this. And then when I check in on them like two or three months later, they're like, yeah, I should do this. Yeah, I should do this. And it's like some people see cost as a barrier to entry. But I yep. think a lot of people, at least a lot of people I know, they just need to like flip the switch and, and do it. And there is something that is not tangible that is blocking their ability to just move forward. What, well, let me just, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. No, I was like, what can I as a friend or a loved one say to like move them further in that direction? Well, I think it, uh, just telling your friends, Hey, look, you've been saying, yeah, I think I should do it. It's a good idea. And then here we are. And you tell me the same thing. How come you haven't gone? I'm only saying this because I care about you. How come you haven't gone? I've done it. I'm telling you, it'd be the best thing you've done for yourself. It's really helpful. What's, what's keeping you? And ask first, what's keeping you? Why didn't you go? I didn't have time. Well, if you know your friend well enough and you can call your friend out on BS, you can call your friend out and say, right. yeah, you do have time. But you know, that's usually going to be a smoke screen. I don't have time to smoke screen for something else. You're right about cost. Cost can sometimes be a barrier. And like I said, we are the other. So if somebody has a, you know, a sore throat and a fever, he's gone to the doctor. If somebody's stressed out and not sleeping, he's probably not going to a therapist or a psychiatrist unless it gets really bad. Mm. Why? Because that's admitting something about who he is as a person. Strep throat has nothing to do with being a man. Anybody can get strep throat. Being unsure of himself or feeling a loss of control in any way, in many ways, the way men are socialized, that is saying something about quality and strength as a man. So that's a barrier. I think we have the, the double whammy when we're talking about people of color, blacks in particular, and going to see a psychiatrist. First of all, it's criminal how few black male psychiatrists are uh, there are in this country. There need to be more. I agree. Um, if you're looking to follow anyone on Twitter, Frank Clark, MD, is a really sharp guy to follow. I just read an article by him yesterday. 
and I chose to follow him now on Twitter, but he makes that point. There aren't enough male black psychiatrists, which might make it easier because, you know, let's think about the history of medicine in this country, particularly with black men. And you know where I'm going to go with this, right? Mm -hmm. The Tuscaloosa experiment. Probably, probably would, I put that right up there online with what the Nazis did during Nazi Germany, during the Holocaust and their medical experiments, you know, infecting black males or not treating black males infected with syphilis and then just watching how the disease progresses through the years. That's just absolutely disgusting to me. But that helps to ingrain a deeper mistrust of going in. So you already have these hyped up stereotypes of what a man's supposed to be. You have the barrier of race and then you have the history of how medicine has treated my field. I told you in the 1800s, there were segregated asylums because it was felt that it would be better for the slaves and to, to have their own place. But really, they just wanted control. So you look at this, this long history that a lot of people probably don't know about the history in psychiatry. And that's why I like the fact this article was just put out in Psychiatric News. They're huge barriers, Mike. They're huge barriers. You know, and, and I think right now, especially, it's important for all non-black clinicians to be reading, educating, active, and listening. And, you know, don't ask, if you're white, don't ask your black patient, what can I do to understand this? Go educate yourself, man. Learn, (laughs) and then come in educated, come in educated so you can ask educated questions. Don't, Don't ask to be educated by somebody who's already hurting. Right. That's that's a, a boundary violation in therapy anyway. You don't do that. And that means you better check down yourself before you start asking those questions. And I think when we, if we can start to see more of that in training programs, like residency training programs, I'm sure they're doing even more of this now than when I was in. But they need to really focus on cultural aspects in psychiatry. You know, they need to have more people like Richard Cooper was a social worker at Temple. I told you about and he taught the unit on cultural psychiatry. And I still remember you know, a lot of the things he taught us about how we as white residents should and need to be dealing with black patients who we saw a lot of then. And, you know, it was really helpful as far as opening up the doors to care and understanding what care looks like when you're treating someone who has always been looked at as other. You know, he and I, I shared with him a video. Remember the band Living Color? Yeah, I love the band Living Color. Yeah, but they were one of my faves in the early 90s. I, I loved the mix of some, you know, funk and rhythm elements with rock, but they put out a song called Funny Vibe. Yep. And I think it really captures a lot of what goes on when people need help and are afraid to ask because the people that they might have to ask for help aren't going to be listening. And in fact, or, or worse, might be actively not listening on purpose. Right. A little while later, and these, these vignettes I bring up are more, you know, from the things I've read, to illuminate what I think helps with the barriers to care, particularly for blacks, particularly for black men, Mike. Um, Questlove wrote uh, a, a beautiful essay about his experience in an elevator. Did you read that? It was in I New did, York Magazine. Yep. yep, I read it. And I mean, I actually was moved to tears when I read that, thinking about how would I feel if that was me? Yeah. So I think the more we start to, to confront racial profiling, racial stereotyping, the more we understand cultural needs, 
Like I can't tell you how many times in my black patients I've seen them come in on blood pressure medicines. And this one black woman had been put on um, a beta blocker. They don't work well in people of African-American descent. And I said, did, did your doctor tell you that this may not work as well because you're black and it metabolically? No. Well, no wonder your blood pressure is still high. You need to you need to go back and talk to this person or find a different doctor. Different person, right? So, so I think there has to be, you know, we we've done a lot with gender medicine and looking about how women metabolize. We need to look about at that as well. And in general, education from a young age, hopefully, helping people learn tolerance, hopefully, shifting the values of what a male is in our society, and making that appropriate to whatever culture you're speaking to you can't say well this is what it means to be a man no matter who you are no but there, no there's differences yeah absolutely and it's and you have to accept those differences and i think if we can continue to move towards that and it comes with education i keep saying that word from elementary school all the way through if you're going into medicine residency programs need to focus on this all the time i, I there, there needs to be more black faculty on all the staffs and, and brown faculty and Asian faculty and all mm -hmm. these others so that we have uh, um, a, a true approach and there are people who are expert, but particularly there needs to be a bump up in, in people who are black and brown to help with the training and not just to teach blacks and be available for them, but to teach whites too yes, absolutely. as educators. Yeah. So those are the things I think have to happen in order to make it okay for anyone to go to whichever therapist happens to be closest in network convenient or whatever. And, yep. you know, and as far as you go, I think just, yeah, you got that friend of yours who's not going, call him out. <laughs> Big shout out to Dr. Block for giving some insight on not only how knowledgeable and compassionate he is as a practitioner, but how knowledgeable and compassionate he is as a human being. I've got to once again give a shout out to his eldest son, Matt, for being the guest on episode 18. You should go back and check that out if you haven't already. And I've got to show love to his youngest son, Jacob, who actually designed the Detoxicity logo. So big shout out to you, Jake. Uh, while we're giving shout outs, endless gratitude to one of my favorite people, Calvin Williams, who composed and performed the music you hear at the beginning and end of each show. If you want to know a little bit more about Calvin's musical stylings, or at least his DJ stylings, make sure you log on to Radio Free Brooklyn every Tuesday night at 11. 11 p.m. for his radio show Lush Vibes Radio that is on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org every Tuesday at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The charity that really got me started working with nonprofits is the Jed Foundation. Uh, this charity is based here in New York City, and they work with high school and college age people to protect emotional health and prevent suicide. Especially now, as many people are going back to class in a much different world than they ended last school year, it's good for young folks to have outlets on campus that allow for checking in on their mental health. Find out more about the amazing work the Jed Foundation does at jedfoundation.org. And uh, if you want to know more about detoxicity, you can shoot me an email. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. Go to facebook.com slash detoxpod. It's Mike Joseph on Instagram. Please leave a comment, leave a message, leave a rating. Anywhere you listen to the podcast, if you'd like to be on the podcast, give me a shout. If you just have a piece of advice or support or something that I should tweak, let me know. I am 100% all ears and want to make this a fantastic listening experience and learning experience for everyone. So uh, with that, I wish you all well. Until the next episode, my name is Mike Joseph. Peace, y'all.